0: not all strong people are powerful but powerful people tend to be strong um, and people that say otherwise are probably getting confused by people that aren't able to express that strength with a barbell on the back but they're usually strong because if you're moving your body weight at that speed you're probably developing a lot of force so underpinning all those basics you know you know is still the common fundamental around getting just getting yourself in good shape on the basics
1: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about training transfer and building absolute beasts for collision sports. So we've got Nick Lumley who is the head of performance at the New South Wales Waratahs in Super Rugby. And if anyone's ever watched Super Rugby, these guys are truly beasts. So we have a little chat to Nick around how he develops strength and power in these guys and how he uses non-technically demanding exercises like leg press to get the adaptations that he wants rather than being married to a particular exercise like a back squat, which is something that probably everyone has done throughout their career, but Nick details how he did that specifically during his career then we have a little chat around training transfer and how he assesses that and maybe where the Waratahs aren't where he wants them to be in terms of understanding transfer but trying to get there and understanding which exercises and which physical qualities actually transfer to game performance so it's a really interesting episode with Nick that I'm sure you'll really enjoy This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder, Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The Powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. TeamBuilder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with TeamBuilder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nick. Nick Lumley, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a big fan of the show. I've listened to a lot over the years of motorway driving and stuff like that. Um, I've been a big fan, so thank you.
1: No, thank you. Thank you for coming on, and uh, a bit of a switch for you. Well, a little bit of a switch to the other side of the world. <laughs> was it last year?
0: Yeah, yeah. It was. I I landed on Christmas Eve of twenty twenty one. So it was. We my last game for Edinburgh was we played Saracens away in, in Europe. Um, we had a long train back to London, about three days to pack my flat, and then I was, then I was um. Then I was off and um, landed here about 6 p.m. Christmas Eve, three days in quarantine, um, as they were doing at the time with the COVID rules. And then that was it. It's the 2nd or 3rd of January 22, I was in. So, um, yeah, I've just finished my second uh, Super Rugby season.
1: Nice. And how's it been so far, very quickly?
0: Yeah, oh, awesome. Yeah, it's a great challenge. It's a great, quite a rare one. It's not not a huge amount of European practitioners may have had the opportunity to come in here, particularly into that kind of role. And so I, I couldn't really resist it. I've been a big fan of Australia and Australian sport for a period of time. And visited there a fair bit, but um, I kind of thought the opportunity wasn't going to come with, with COVID and all the rest of it. And then out of the blue it did. So, yeah, it's been a great move for me. Challenging, it's, it's, it's a test. It's, they do things differently as, as every country environment does, but yeah, very rewarding. Like i really enjoyed it.
1: Excellent. Would you mind just giving a bit of a brief bio of what's happened before the Yes. Immigration?
0: Yeah, so I was I was um a started off as a Bath Uni student. Um back in yeah when I was sort of you know 18 week school go through uni. Bath Uni Sports Science was 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 one of the prominent ones, I think still is. Um and a lot of people on my course were doing S and C. Um, one or two you've had on this show, people like Ed Gannon was a mate of mine at uni. We studied together. Um in my last year at uni with him, he he just signed with a job at Gloucester. Um, Bath had this sandwich year where people could go away and get a year in industry as well as do your three-year study, so your three-year degree becomes a four. I didn't do that, so I met Ed in my last year as he was coming back. Um Paddy Hogwarts was another one doing the same thing, coming back, and he had work secured, all his SNC coaches. So I was rubbing shoulders with these guys that just spent a year in the industry as the s coaches at rugby teams and institutes and things like that, and I realized, hang on, people actually you know, earn a living doing doing you know, training athletes for a living. Now. I was a big trainer myself with a background in track and field and a bit of weightlifting and stuff, and loved it. I just didn't, never considered it as a viable career option until I met these guys, and I realized then actually I need to get some experience, and so um, reached out to the guys at Bath who. who arranged all placements and said, look, I'm going to finish my undergrad. Um, I'll self-fund this and all the rest of it. I just need to go and get some experience. And so coincidentally, Craig White had just signed to uh, be part of Warren Gatlin's staff at Wales when Gatlin's first stint there in 2008. I um, was looking for interns and they introduced me to him and it was quite last minute. They'd just come back from the tour South Africa and he was trying to get going quick and they introduced us and I met Craig and, and that was my first year as an intern. Welsh rugby. I was the first intern they had. They've got a quite a deep and, you know, um well established intern programme there now. But back then it was I was the first one and I shared an office with Craig White, Mark Bennett, and Fergus Connolly for a year. Um and in between into test windows, I'd get sent to the Newport Glen Dragons and I'd help out there and look after Welsh Bay and all the other guys there. And um that was my first year. Um uh then I had a short spell, my first Moved to Scotland. I moved up there to coach their Olympic sports for initially for six months. It was like someone had, I interviewed for another job and came second, and they reached out to me and said, We've got a six month um, position here to cover someone that I did need a hip replacement. Um, and I went up there and they literally said, it, The job's yours. The only thing we need is it's, it was a Friday. We need to start Monday. So I had a banged up old VW Polo and chucked a few things in there, and up I went, and they put me in a hotel for two weeks, and that was me. Um, I loved it. It was great. It was what I'd always wanted. I was there. I was finally getting paid to coach athletes. My evening jobs and stuff had come to an end and I was coaching, um, and uh, for a living. And then midway through that, Gloucester reached out to me. They'd, it was Mark Bitcoin was at Gloucester, who's up to England now. He, him and Craig White were pretty close. Um, Craig had mentioned me to him. I'd reached out to Mark on the hunt for work previously and he had my CV on file and whatever. And, all those times when people say, "I oh, will keep your CV on file," and you think, "Then no, no, they just ignore it." Well, Mark did, and he rang me when the job came up, and I went, drove down to meet him over a weekend, and, and, and yeah, they offered me the job, and I ended up doing three years at Gloucester, um, which was great. I academy on first team. I a couple of years with the first team, it was like the second in command. Um, it was really really good. It was it was um, yeah, it was a big club, a huge, awesome rugby time Gloucester. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that and then I went back into Olympic sports three, working at the University of Bath and um, coaching TASS, which is obviously, you'll be familiar with TASS, I'm sure the Talent Athlete Scholarship Scheme is kind of like an academy for Olympic sports, all those people that are one Olympiad out from going to the Olympics there um, and it's tied into them, you know, committing to study, it was great, all kind of multi-sport environments, males, females. It was great. It was everything I needed having coached predominantly rugby, male rugby players all my life. I was coaching 18-year-old girls and trying to establish a rapport with them. It was a bit different to 29, 30-year rugby players, you know, and so it was good for me. And you actually don't have to coach there because you've got time to coach. I was on the gym floor 35 hours a week, something like that. Um, and then I got there in time for London Olympics and there a few like summer sports that I, you know, were just in the final preparations. I guess you probably were up at the time, you were up on your CV, you were involved with it, but I wasn't. I observed a few sessions out it. But then I Glasgow 2014, I had a judo group that I prepared for two years into that and I certainly was busy with that and enjoyed it and various other sports. But then post-Glasgow comedy games, I had the had a few conversations with Scotland rugby over a sort of two, three-year period. I had a lot of Scotland players at Gloucester at the time, five of their starting team were Gloucester players back then. So I had a connection there they reached out and offered me the sevens, and um, it was too good to turn down. Like go back into rugby, pro sport, and all the rest. And I, you know, I felt I was ready to go back into it. Um, and so I did. Um, initially, it was it was just a the, uh, Scotland-based SNC, and they would go in, travel with the SNC and stuff. But they they were a great, good organization. Like the role kind of shaped. I ended up traveling to the sevens tournaments for three years. And then I ended up I got on pretty well with Ernie Cotter, who was a national team coach when I crossed paths with him and he was keen for an extra pair of hands with the national team really. So I got involved with the Scotland fifteens as well for the twenty fifteen build up to the World Cup with a pretty long like that they were going into now really in the UK. And I was doing all that with Scotland. Um and then I got back into the sevens and I did another summer tour with them. So I kind of went back and forth a little bit, but it was predominant focus with the sevens and then Byrne went to Montpellier and um, there was potential to maybe go with him. Um, but Scottish rugby were quite keen on me staying. Um, I felt very grateful to them for what they'd done. And so the opportunity came to go to Edinburgh. Richard Cockerell was going as a head coach and they were putting a new team in there. And so I kind of like, led into that, really. It was the right thing to do and it was the right call at the time. And it was awesome. I did four and a half years at Edinburgh. And... Um, so in that fifth season, um, opportunity with Warriors came about, and um, yeah, as I said earlier, it was too good to turn down, and so here I am, here now. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the professional bits. Obviously, there's been a few different courses and qualifications and studying along the way, but yeah, that's kind of how I've spent the last 15 years of my life professionally.
1: It's good, excellent. Thanks for that. I'd be interested to to, to know, given that you've not just been a, a one sport man, <clears throat> which is more common now, that you've delve in other mm-hmm. areas, Olympic athletes, et cetera. How is your, what is your philosophy? Can you boil it down? Which I'm guessing you probably can, because I, I would have thought that that's probably one of the first questions when you come to an interview in someone like the Waratahs. But how has that, how is that philosophy developed over the last 15 years?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, the answer changes, I guess. Yeah. Um, like I'm big on reading and learning, even now I'm pretty big on reading and having little projects and personal development things that you have going in the backbone to your sort of day-to-day work. And it does it does change. Like I was as a young guy, I was massively looking up to people and trying to mimic their programmes, as I see a lot of young coaches do now. Um and you have your idea of that's what a good program looks like. So I want to make mine look like that, whereas now my philosophy is much more based around what is this, what, what are the gaps in this athlete or this team or this program? You know, where are the, What can I do to add, add value that's going to get us closer to what our objective is? Like at the Waratahs, our job is to prepare guys to win the Super Rugby game. So where are those gaps um, and what, what can I do to fill those gaps? Um, largely what we do is supplement the rugby in season and what does that look like? Um, I'm much more focused these days on this what the, the stimulus is, understanding the stimulus and how can I work back from the stimulus to write a, a gym programme or a field programme. Whereas when I was younger it was why everyone needs to clean and squat and bench and you know, all those things that we get taught by UKCA, etc. I massively moved away from that. Like are we delivering the right stimulus? What does this athlete need? Um and I've spent a long time in rugby, I'm come from a family of rugby players and you know. Grown up on it, really grown up in Bath, um, to understand, like, you know, get a big Fijian number eight coming into, the, coming into your team. This guy doesn't need to lift lots of weights. Like, these guys haven't lifted weights all their lives. So your, your sort of one-size-fits-all approach is, is really isn't appropriate. Like, what does this guy need to do to be his best on Saturday? What does this guy need to do to be his best in six months' time or 12 months' time? Like, What, 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 what does this need to look like for this player? And, and what's that stimulus ultimately? And and the, the cornerstone for me is a good understanding of the multifaceted nature of it. So it's um like you get brought up in S and C on just focus on the strength or the conditioning or the speed. And it's a thing in Australia, really, where you get this guy of the strength, that the guide of the speed and that guy of the rehab, etc. But what about the nutrition, the recovery, and you know, the slightly more holistic program and um understanding that and building a program that incorporates all of that, all aspects of your program combined to deliver the correct stimulus. Um, and that's where I'm far more at now with it. Um, I'm pretty comfortable with guys We don't need to lift many weights in the gym, We don't do too much weights with them. Um, I'm pretty comfortable with that now because it's what that player needs that athlete needs, but 10, 15 years ago, I would have been slightly less comfortable <laughs> with that because that was my biases as a young guy and a background in weightlifting and sprinting. Everyone needs to do these things and so, um, yeah, a bit of a roundabout answer there. But yeah, it's it's far more um, spoke to what I think that person needs to take on the field as opposed to my S&C focused biases, I guess. Um, and it's something I've learned through trial and error and probably getting it wrong as much as getting it right and junk training with your athletes' programs and feedback from coaches and athletes or both that maybe this isn't what I need. And you reflect on that and you realize, yeah, you've, you've got a point. And the biggest thing I've found over time is like I'm... Big fan of Mark Bennett, I mentioned, you know, early boss of mine. I look, look at him a lot, and he's been a you know, really good influence on me when I was younger. Like constantly measuring inside your training. We don't test, and I don't do much testing, but we do measure during training and just error checking yourself almost is what, what I'm doing working? Is what I'm doing having a performance? And I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute around you know, how that transfers to the field. but. Before you get to that point, like we say, we're going to make this guy stronger. Well, are we getting stronger? Are we wasting his time trying to change body comp? Are we changing this person's body comp, or are we not? Because there's nothing wrong with writing a program that doesn't work, as long as you understand why that doesn't work. Each, each, all of us have got our own physiology and our own gene expressions, etc. And these things combine individually for every single person on the planet. So, what works for one person will work differently for someone else. And so, it's, there's nothing wrong with. Things not working, but having a program that error checks, it, I think, it's, it is is quite important. And that's pretty much if you came to watch the Waratahs now, what you'd what you'd see, we, we track what we're doing constantly, but we try and bespoke it individuals. So you know, we we have general themes in our in our um, across our squad these days. We have guys that are trying to get bigger and stronger. We have guys that are trying to lose body fat and retain muscle mass. We have guys that are more focused on expression of power and speed, um, and you know, they are constant things, but there's an individualization on top of that. So um, the biggest challenge usually in rugby union is managing um, that you know how you have your philosophy but how do you uh, then bespoke that for such a you know big group of people with the staff you've got and so that's often what becomes the biggest challenge for us.
1: When you say focus on the stimulus first and then yes. the cascade effect of actually ending up in a selection of exercise would you better talk us through that and maybe a couple of exa- a couple of examples along the way yeah. maybe one that a, a, a timeline or a, a, a situation that would end up in an ex- a selection of exercise that isn't particularly uh, recognized or commonplace or whatever mm-hmm. and then maybe one that yeah. potentially is
0: yeah so too often in, and i did this a lot as a young coach i've made this guy squat more bench press more pull up more so i will made him stronger well, I haven't. I've made them better at exercise. You might have made them stronger, but you might not. But getting better at squat doesn't mean your legs are stronger. You're like I, I with the first experience of this was I first got access to force plates, and I just randomly put it under my guys when they were training, particularly in Olympic sports where like, they're good people. Like you asked me to do a squat on a force plate, yeah, no bother, I'll do it. Whereas some of the rugby players that are slightly like more high, strong, they maybe looking a bit funny. Um, and so you just started looking into it, and you find actually, well, silly little things like. You'd think that, I remember putting a couple of weightlifters on a force brain and they go up to like 220 squats or something. And you think, well, the 220 be the biggest force but it wasn't. It was about 180, 200. About 80% of your 1RM's where a lot of these guys are producing max force because ultimately force is mass times acceleration. And, you know, the acceleration is so much greater at slightly sub-maximal weights that the actual foresight looks bigger. So, don't think about it. you just reflect and scratch anything. actually, like, like, have I got this wrong? So, you know, am I delivering a better stimulus by. You know, moving a slightly lighter weight faster as an example, um, and then you start thinking, well, what actually is important? And then I started reading into more and more of your harder core strength science. And, yeah, what well, we're trying to what we're trying to do, we're trying to make guys stronger. We want guys to maximally recruit their big smoke units. Yes. So, what does that in the size principle, etc. And you want to probably want to lift above ninety percent of your max force for that because that is more turned by straight. Fine. Are you synchronizing that Can, uh, uh, that that recruitment pattern? So how big is it, and are you synchronising it? But then you think, about well, what else matters? Well, are you getting uh, you getting inhibition from goal organs? Are you getting co-activation of antagonistic, new working muscles? Uh, and how is how is that relevant to the goal we're trying to achieve? So um, you know, you might if you do lots of heavy squats and your one iron goes up quite often. You're just better. You're just damping down that inhibition maybe quieting down those antagonistic contractions, allowing the prime movers to express force slightly better and you lift the weight. You might not have those prime movers might not be necessarily um, producing any more force. They're just not getting dampened down by, you know, inhibitory processes. So um yeah, so we need to write strength programs to target what these adaptations are, not just how can I kind of this kind guy of squat more? Um, and that kind of got me scratching my head and thinking and um, we've you know played around with different leg presses. Um, you know, I remember going up to Leicester Tigers back in the day when Ed Gannon was still there and Al Martin was there, and we went up there a couple of weightlifters and we did some. We've done all those squats on force plates, and we did squats on. We did some like horizontal leg presses. I don't want to plug the company too much, but I'm a big, big user of the Myo Thruster over the years. Um, they do it's a very good machine, and we put a force plate in that and measured the force outputs on that. And, there's leg press, there's weightlifters, all these boys, um, you know, the idea of leg pressing, you're not squatting, they look at you and think, yeah, so you can double dutch, like it's not some of this in their DNA. But you ask them to do it, and they've never done it in their life before, and they all produce a bigger foresight, but they were squatting. And for whatever reason, there's a few different reasons for that, potentially, in terms of the different muscles you can recruit, etc., etc. But if but you think about the stimulus that's delivering, well, you're producing bigger foresight, but you're putting more strain through the tissue, you're quite likely to be doing more to recruit those biggest motor units. And so you may well be getting bigger adaptation around maximum recruitment. Um, in terms of synchronising that recruitment, then I wouldn't know enough to know if that was better or worse. But it's definitely different. You know, the role of inhibitory systems will be will be different. And so, based off that, like if I've take that into my day to day practice now, if I've got a six foot eight, six foot nine second row forward who's got such long femurs. But the concept of squatting is quite difficult from a biomechanical point of view, which is purely and un- driven. Well, am I going to deliver a stimulus that lets recruit up to 90% of their peak force in the back squat? It's pretty unlikely because that is a motor control challenge for them, not an expression of force challenge. So, you know, exercise selection is a biomechanical means to express force. And if your role is to do maximum strength, well, you might choose a better exercise. We will use. And my thrust do a lot for that here because we know that we can put huge amounts of force with knee and hip extensors on that machine. We're most likely to get favorable adaptations at the nervous system level. Um, then we will do squatting in those athletes that are really tall. So but that will be a primary strength market for us. And we've moved away from using back squats as any kind of measure of force so with we'll isometric pulling for that. And isometric, isometric pulls don't discriminate anthropometrics if you can adjust it. And so we'll hold them accountable for that expression of force, but we'll develop that force through a means that allows them to ultimately express it based on their anthropometry. So that's kind of a process I've had trickling on the background of the last few years of strength training on how we develop maximum force. But it's linked not to, I want to make these guys squat more because that's max strength. because That's what UKCA or whatever, I'm not UKCA great. I've done nothing against them at all, but as a young coach, that's what you get brought up on. Um, yeah, it's, it's, these adaptations we need. We need to express this amount of force so we can recruit the biggest fibers, and we can. You know, I'm a big believer that one of the primary adaptations in rugby is preferential hypertrophy. So, what are we doing to elicit that kind of response? Well, the the quality of the force you produce and the magnitude of the force you produce is integral to that, and so you know that's how it's evolved over time from how we how we develop strength. Like, ultimately, logistics were a factor for me. So, guys, that we do a lot of squats because a lot of guys are very good at it and they can generate huge amounts of force. We've got plenty of guys squatting big numbers at the work task. So they no, you have no issue doing it, but I've no issue the guys that can't do it. We, we actively take them away from it. Um, but that's, that's been triggered by, um, measuring, um, what's going on, uh, measuring ground reaction force and understanding it, linking it to some of your basic, um, sort of more, um, sort of physiology driven, um, research around. Are the what are the, like, what are the sort of neural adaptations, the morphological adaptations and make you stronger? If you want to make a muscle grow, it's pretty simple. You take it to failure, put a load of force through it, and get to do some people what bodybuilders do. They're not stupid, those boys. Like they lift heavy weights and they lift weights to failure. Like so are you are you giving them exercise choices that allow them to do that? Like if we're doing if we're trying to get someone's quads bigger, we're probably more likely to um, put them on one of these horizontal leg presses and then we are squat them for failure. Because if you squat a guy to failure, I guarantee you that most guys will lose motor control way before they lose, um, you know, the actual tissue accumulates so much lactate and muscle damage that you go to failure. So you're going to put probably a stimulus to that tissue on slightly more controlled exercise with less degree of freedom that ultimately can go wrong under fatigue. So, um, yeah, again, as a young man, I'd have just been, you yeah, I'd have been squatting them. And it's, it's, yeah, it's it's been through trying areas. Really. So I can talk you through some. You know, we've uh, quite a few examples of power training that's been that's been different and how that's developed. Like we've uh, a little side hobby has been to begin to get into using R and getting better at stats and building a few little models out of that and trying to understand what of our sort of variables are into predicting each other. And holy grail for most team sports is we want bigger people running faster or well, certainly rugby, it's it's collision based sport, and so. What well, about power training predicts predicts um, speed? And, you know, I grew up on older weightlifter myself. Um, Olympic lifting, well, love them, you know. But you're not actually developing huge amounts of power in Olympic lifting. A lot of athletes, unless you're good at it, unless you're lifting good numbers, you're not trying to be huge amounts of power. So, but we had a good database here historically. I had a good one in Edinburgh um, where we're looking at well, what, power, what, what power metrics are predicting the guy who sprint the fastest. And... It wasn't necessarily what we expected. Your sort of track and field based research would tell you that max velocity, for an example, would be predicted by RSI. And sort of John Goodwin explains it really well. And that book he's just released, um, or him and Dan Clever released, the second force ones, is excellent. It goes over um, John's philosophy really well. You know, I did a master's in St. Mary's under those guys, and John talks about, you know, max velocity when we can no longer accelerate. You understand that, you can understand speed and the, the reason the reason why some people run fast and this sort of summation of that is these top sprinters hit 0.08, 0.08 second contact time at max velocity and it's the ability to overcome gravity, propel yourself in the air in such a short time frame that allows them to direct this surplus of energy backwards so you can keep accelerating slightly longer. And um, The challenge that you tend to find is the taller guys that have this longer contact length, as John called it. Um, he'll talk about contact length and contact time. He'll remember he, you really made a really good um, comparison of Tyson Gay and Usain Bolt, and the fact that Usain Bolt was taller, that he's able to match Gay for um, contact time that allowed him to accelerate slightly longer and hit a higher top speed and run faster. And it makes perfect sense. And so I've always had this belief in my head that, from that, that, well, contact time is, is key for, if you can improve minimum contact time in our, in our athletes, we can accelerate slightly longer and run faster. Uh, so he's looked at Edinburgh, like RSI is that, is that king? They bought RSI data and our guys built sprint. And obviously, there's a relationship there. It's you know, the good athletes are the best at everything, um, by and large, and especially in the world I'm in team sports. But we actually found it wasn't the strongest predictor. Um, depth jumping classical. I'm big fan of the Russian Eastern European text, Big Europe, Yuri Verkishansky fan, a young man, and it's definitely got Mark Bennett's influence on me there. And people like Carmelo Bosco and those guys, I poured through those texts when I was a young guy, and Mark was new Yuri and remember, um telling me then that Brekerhansky is a big believer in rugby players he's broken English telling Mark that we need to push harder and um, and, and not be trying to be so quick on the floor in rugby that's not how we we're going to run And I remember um, when that sort of analysis came off we were looking at these inference trees that um, kind of little, it looks into explores the relationship of correlation a bit more deeper than just correlating it at what levels those relationships happen. In. We found that 80% of our top depth jumpers also are top sort of band of sprinters as well. And RSI wasn't that high. And it took me back to what, what, what that, um, sort of back in 2008, what Mark said that you had said to him. And yeah, it, it kind of got me thinking that I've been blindly following track and field research. And over the years, I've developed a real healthy disdain for S&C research because the data I collect on my athletes so often refutes it. Um, yeah, in Edinburgh, our top depth jumpers were our best sprinters, 8% of them were There's always anomalies, but it was it was the strongest prediction. And so we just got more really good at depth jumping for, for two years. And we had some really good changes in our max velocities. However, there's other factors for it. So I couldn't sit you and publish that. But we also changed to a new pitch when Edinburgh built a new stadium. We also made speed more important because we were determined to develop it because we're a little strong guy and want to make it quicker. So there's other factors at play there. We threw everything at it and hope something stick, But... A big factor was that, you know, our data set at our club was telling us that you know, we don't run like sprinters, for whatever reason, what's the surface or the kind of muscle mass we carry, whatever it might be, we're not stiff athletes. We're we're producing more force every foot contact. And maybe we do try and accelerate every foot contact as opposed to bounce over the floor maybe slightly more. Jonas, um, I spoke to him about it recently and he, he talked about different archetypes of sprinting and he'd be a good one to answer that question better than me, but um we found that and I've repeated that analysis at Waritas and it's come out slightly different again. Um depth jumping's still big, but RSI is bigger here. Um it's always certainly as important. Uh, again, with the, the, the ground here is rock solid. Maybe that's a factor, I don't know. But I've got maybe sixty odd data sets at Edinburgh in one thing, I've got a slightly bigger one here. Um, over the last few years, telling me that yeah, depth jump is important, but RSI is important. So, here we get we're trying to get good at drop jumping and depth jumping. Um, and we're putting a bit more focus on both. And we're looking at, um, you know, what, what can we build that into our program? Because you know, it's 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 the time you get with your is quite limited. So, optimizing that is, is really key. But we're not doing huge amounts of speed drilling really here, we're not doing huge amounts of some of that speed training. We've had some very good lots of players with them, but lots of bounding and stuff alongside it. But it's more the gross expression of force route we've gone down. We've had some good changes off the result of that, um, but it's all been driven by this constant just in the background measuring data and getting better at understanding and analysing it. And I quite enjoy the sort of personal development side of learning how to code and build stats, and it's a topic that interests me. So um, it's been a quite a common theme. I guess that over the years I've been a strength and power coach was to sort of dig into that and I'm very open to changing what I do and I find stuff that tells me I can make it better. So, yeah, I don't know if... Yeah, that's a couple of different examples around speed and strength there, but that's kind of the process and the rabbit holes I've been down looking down over the last few years trying to understand how to to write better programs.
1: Just clarify for us the difference between depth jumps and drop jumps. One's aiming for...
0: Hi, one's aim for school yeah good yeah good yeah exactly that so i'm 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 sticking to Yuri's terminology I guess with a depth jump right. we're telling our guys to jump as high as possible I don't care I don't care how long you're on the floor um you read into the fast and slow strip shortening cycle stuff I guess that's roughly what you're looking at and the two different routes there that you can use to augment a concentric power output so yeah we're telling our guys to be stiff as possible and giving them RSI as the a target I'm not a big fan of RSI as a measure um, I think it's a proxy really, I think it's, I think it's a bit um, overrated really, but the concept of trying to develop stiffness and the ability to, um, and the ability to restore the usage in short time frames versus ability to augment and max power output, which is what you get from depth jump. So yeah, that's, that's the two coaching points really is one's jump as high as you can, one to be stiff.
1: So are these two, especially now at the Waratahs, are these two exercises a, 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 a real cornerstone of your program and how do you how do you get there and how do you manage it with the bigger guys mm-hmm. if at all
0: yeah um they've been a cornerstone this year first year here i, I didn't feel they were want wanting to be so you know um yeah we pick the low hanging fruit before we move up i guess and so First year was more about getting the guys fit, where there's the injury things we need to address, science and injury breaks, and how we changed the few things around that, and get them stronger, get them exposed to regular training in the way we wanted to. We mixed up the training week and all that kind of stuff. So first week, first year was very put fundamentals in place. Second year, we felt that we'd get them strong pretty quick, and we went into the season a lot stronger this year than we did last year because we did accumulated some work. And so far bigger focus on, Transferring that into them running fast to year two. Um, and yeah, the year two programs are quite different to year one. And this year we've done a lot of drop and depth jumping, we've done a lot of weighted squat jumps. That came out as a really good predictor as well, uh, to, and particularly on acceleration. Um, and so, yeah, a lot more of that. You maybe used a little bit of, I guess the trendy word now is VBT for it all, but yeah, prescribing velocities and trying to work it maybe that sort of. 80% max load and moving that quicker, a bit more for our strengths than this, this year, and focus a bit more on preferential aperture fee. So, but to get there, it, it definitely takes a bit of time for some of them. Um, I wouldn't overcomplicate and dig in too much detail like we have here if I wasn't confident we put some foundations in place for us. So, if you guys aren't, if your body, comp- like if, like when we're looking at predictors of max speed, the strongest predictor of max speed is quite often skin folding. In, in athletes. So just don't be fat. Like there's no science, there's nothing complicated in that. Um then I mean the big lesson there is, is you know you know, we get the fundamentals in place first. Um and it's not all not all strong people are powerful, but powerful people tend to be strong. Um and people that say otherwise they're probably getting confused by people that aren't able to express that strength with a barbell on the back, but they're usually strong because if you're moving your body weight at that speed you're probably developing a lot of force. So Underpinning all those basics, you know, is still the common fundamentals around getting, just getting yourself in good shape on your basics. So that tends to take time. There's always, you know, there were plenty of guys in good shape when we arrived a year ago, but as a trend, that's what we've done with them. Um, It is drip fed in, it's microdated in, particularly initially. Um, You, 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 you can break, you can certainly break guys. And while we're doing depth jumps off 60 centimeter boxes quite regularly, I've had smaller guys, particularly at Edinburgh, where we're a bit further down the line with it. We had guys doing it off 75 centimeters there uh, quite routinely, which is the height that Berkashansky like always talks about. We never had any issues with it. Um, you do get a bit of dom. So sometimes, as you first time you introduce it, it's just a set of three or two sets of three, real micrilays within and to get them exposed to it and just build it up over time. But my, you could definitely criticize me and say some of my training, some of my programs can be a little bit repetitive. And my response is that it's, I'm not here to entertain. I'm here to chase an outcome. And by and large, athletes enjoy getting better. And so if, 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 the training works and they're getting good results, buying has never been an issue. Um, we tend to get issues when it's not working, but normally we're going, the programs are repetitive because we found a form that's working for us and we don't want to deviate too far from it. And uh, across a periodized year, and so, um, but because it's repetitive, obviously, the shock aspect of you know constantly changing societies is not there. Um, the tolerance gets, gets built. Um, we do do supplementary work for certain guys, and we have guys with tendon pathologies that maybe struggle with you know high speed, high load eccentrics, and you know, maybe those guys, you know, there's plenty of guys that maybe for whatever reason don't do it. Um, but we certainly. Push going into it as much as much as we can, because we do feel it's been quite a potent stimulus for us. So, oh. um, like I said, I could probably speak to you in a year's time, and there'll be changes again if we realise that we're reaching a point of diminishing returns on something. We'll, we'll, we'll alter that, but um, yeah, normally it, it'll probably take. We've we'll probably got a bit more growth that before we reach that point because the trend at the moment has been, has been positive.
1: So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Nick, Hope you enjoy part one. So over in part two, we transfer the conversation to a training transfer conversation. And we have a little dive into where the Waratahs are when it comes to understanding transfer, understanding transfer from the gym in terms of exercises and what makes a difference on the pitch and how they actually assess that. So a really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pasty Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Satanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognised qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India, and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching, and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with Nick. Without going too deep onto the stats, if people are listening to this and going, okay, I want to understand more about my athletes... And the predictors of speed, what do they need to do to be able to get to the situation that you were in at Edinburgh or you're in at Waratahs?
0: You need to start collecting data and make sure it's good data. I could probably answer your earlier question better by digging into that tiny bit. So looking at some historical data on something like a drop jump or a a squat jump, um, I've got data sets that don't show much of a correlation in certain populations I've coached over the years or certain, certain jobs I've had. And we know that those, I've well, got too much data showing relationship for it to not be relevant. But it's just the intent that athletes do it with either how well it's been coached or how, how it's been executed. You don't, you don't see a relationship because people aren't taking it seriously. Well, you understand there, it's not the exercise that's. It's not the exercise that's the, the, where the relationship lies, it's not the depth jump or the squat jump the relationship lies, it's the neuromuscular underpinning qualities that that requires it where the relationship lies and if you don't execute that task in a way that exposes those um, qualities you're not going to find the relationship and that's quite a consistent thing around programming is understanding that you have to tap into those underpinning neuromuscular qualities, Not it's not the exercise that matters, it's, it's, it's what it challenges and so if your data is not clean, you're not going to find much. And so, make sure you've got good data that represents what you want it to represent, and make sure it's, you know, basics around how it's collected and stored over time. As you know, over time, benefit of having a big group of athletes like we have here, whilst it's a challenge logistically, does access to a far bigger data set. And you need decent sized data sets to, to to analyze. But ultimately, like, um, yeah, like I've I've always hired Diverse teams to, to, to work with, and I've last i had a few very good sports scientists in the last few years. Um, the guy I've got at the moment, a guy called Dane Jesson, that's come from AFL, and he's as good as I've ever seen in writing code. And whilst he's our sports scientist, and technically I guess I'm his boss, he very much mentors me. Mentors me around this space, not the other way around. Like he looks over my shoulder and picks hold of my code and keeps me right. But he's helped me a lot with it, and so I'd have found it a lot harder without having him helping me that I sort of argue to them you don't hire good staff and then, and then not learn from them. Um, you need good data sets, you need a basic understanding of it like for our point of view, what we're trying to explore and how we're trying to build models. So that like, what we're, we're doing is you've got some packages for things like correlation inference trees and things like that. they just allow you to explore how things are interacting. Some that you can almost just visualize really like we build some things like density ridges, and people do box plots and things like that. It will still show you. Big thing I'm a big fan of in, in sport like rugby, um, which you can find, you know, I got Patrick Ward on there recently. come across Patrick over the years. He's far brighter than me, but he'll probably pick holes in my stats. But I don't look at my population as one big data set. I put them in bins I and mean, do it statistically based off standard deviations because I've got 18, 19 year old kids here that are rapid as anything, but not particularly strong, low training history, but they're absolutely rapid. And I've got a 33, 34 year old prop that's got a previous injury history as long as you're, you know, just as long as your arm and we're putting them in the same data set trying to answer the question does Stiff influence Max velocity? she you couldn't have too big a contrast athletically so you can't answer that question in that way because how that big heavy 33, 34 year old prop runs is so different to how that 18 year old kid runs so what we do is put them in bins and so our guys that are fast how do they run and our guys that are so sort of moderate speed, how are they running? And we look at it in that way. And so that's why I say 80% of our top sprint, sprinters at Edinburgh are also our best depth jumpers. We're looking at the extreme on that end of it. So that's what those guys do. And that's where we're beginning to explore here at the TARS now is, well, do we need to bespoke our prescription based off what kind of bucket? We call them buckets, your speed buckets, your fast bucket, need medium one and the slow one. You know, depending on what, what, what bucket you're in or what bin you're in, do you, do we need to be a bit more prescriptive? Because we're finding that the RSI is stronger at the TARS only in that that really fast group, the slow group it's not. So those guys probably are just looking to express high amounts of force and use things like depth jumping and squat jumping and all the rest of it, whereas being a bit more reactive, maybe is best for the smaller, lighter, maybe younger, whatever um, group that are in that in that big group. So collected data set, so i just put them into those groups, then start it start exploring how those um how those groups, how those different sort of data sets are interacting. What's your outcome variable of interest? Be very clear on that. And then start looking at it. And you can you can eyeball it, but you know, I can't pretend to be a really good statistician. You can download packages for our like we've got random forest packages and those. Um, I saw your article like Dan Tobin was talking about doing time body weight being the in returns. Well off, off the base of a random forest, um, you know, you can build these partial dependencies and start predicting modeling two sort of data sets and looking at how those data sets interact. And Theoretically speaking, when this variable reaches this point, it's probably not going to affect this one anymore. And yet we find something similar two to two, 2.1, 2.2 times body weight. You start seeing diminishing returns of its influence to make a person faster or make a person accelerate better or jump higher, whatever it might be. Um, it's not as daunting as it seems, which is the best advice I'd give someone looking to do it. Collect good data, have it well-organized, and just have an idea of what you're trying to find out. Get on Google. I mean, ChatGPT is great for that now, that's a I wish I'd like years ago. Um, it's not daunting as you see. You can download packages. It's going to take you a while. You'll fiddle around ages trying to get something to work. But understand, we're trying to—is like, there a relationship between these two things? And then try and explore at what level those relationships occur. Um, and that's all we're, we've really been doing. Um, and like I say, I, I could probably give you a far better answer in six months' time when we've looked into a bit deeper. It's—we're just scratching the surface here at the moment, but. It's, yeah, it's definitely a big driver behind our exercise selection, and and I guess I'd happily if someone wanted to reach out, I'd happily answer the questions, but I'm sure they could find um, better people than me to ask for help. But it's it's not as daunting as it seems.
1: Let's take this on even further, and you referenced there Dan Tobin's article from Gloucester talking mm-hmm. about transfer of training, and yeah understanding what is actually transferring when it comes to a Saturday or a Sunday or, or, or game day. How do you mm. try to understand that? Yes, we've got these guys faster, hopefully. We've got them stronger. We've got them faster. But is that actually completing the the kind of full sequence and transferring that to game day? Obviously, that's quite a complex process, as Dan went through in the article. But how do you go about trying to understand that?
0: Honestly, my understanding is largely conceptual at the moment. We're nowhere near as far down that path as Dan. I mean, yeah, I don't know damn well, but we've spoken over years. I believe we've lost her six, seven years and that's the beauty of time and the role that the program evolves and you get there. At the moment, it's more conceptual to understand that. You know, I've studied Franz Bosch's stuff a lot over the years. I was a big critic of Franz Bosch's coming kind of from my background you look at Francis' stuff I and mean, this is a lot of nonsense you know um and I read his book and he um I actually wrote an article for hammer media on Franz's stuff years ago criticizing it and he responded to me he was very generous and response mind I just slated his book um and he asked me to what did he say the was one. it was that
1: was that was that was that response public or was that a personal one yeah no it, it, no, it was through
0: it was actually through Martin bingus so it' was like oh, Franz Franz enjoyed your critique he thought you done a good job of it. I think he completely disagreed with what I said, but he thought I'd made a, tried to formulate a balanced argument, and he was very generous around that. And he he asked me to review his, or through Martin, they asked me to review his second book, which I did during lockdown. It was hard reading. It was was tough. But the good thing around what he he does really well is his understanding of the nervous system, and he talks about understanding the regulating neural pathways that underpin movement. And the context in which a movement happens is so integral to understanding how you then affect it. So he'll talk, he, like, he'll look at someone like me doing what I'm doing here as reductionist and say, well, it's an alpha pathway. Or his second book goes into calling an alpha pathway to a top down pathway. It's you know, centrally governed. It's pre planned. It's you know, selective activation, whatever you want to call it. And he'll talk about, well, there's different regulating neural pathways. You could do a, a sidestep. Run a straight line and cut off at 45 degrees. And it looks the same, but it could be completely different regulation um, at a, nervous, a neural level depending on the environment. If you're moving faster, the forces you've got to overcome are different as unplanned components, if there's different surfaces. You know, it's classical dynamical the systems theory is what he calls it. But without understanding the neural pathway which something's regulated, how you can you possibly assess whether you've been effective at executing it? And that's kind of his argument in that second book. And he goes into a lot of detail. The thing I've taken from it is attractors and understanding that there's some stuff there that's usable, um, very usable. But looking at Dan's pictures in that article you published, Franz would probably argue that, well, yeah, those posture, i can find that. he talk about three different positions, doesn't he, right? Being square and having that front foot forward and stuff. And he'll, he'll talk about having the strongest muscles at optimal length. And that's a key attractor that he has in most of his movement patterns. And Stuff like that, I understand from showing transference, saying like, what well, Dan's doing really well there, and understanding a technical model which isn't well described. There's not much research on optimal technical models for all carrying, what the union like, there's not much out there. And they've done a really good job of Gloucester of highlighting that. And then he's coaching it, and then, well, and Franz's bit would tap into that. I say, yes, you're correct, that's the right technical model, and it's the right technical model because you're satisfying these attractors, you're, you're, you're putting them in the body. You know, you're putting these stable elements around it, then whatever unplanned context happens, whatever fluctuators are there, you're giving yourself a chance to solve that problem optimally because you're positioning them in the the, optimal position to do that. Um, That was sort of ringing in my head when I was clicking through the article. Um, In terms of what we do, transference-wise, I'd love to say we've got this magic data source that guarantees that we're doing it. Like we get max velocity during the game, yeah, we've had some good, some guys running, good mass of in games that maybe they didn't do last year. But I might just be too rather played really well or not played really well at all. We might have been a line break. We just got hosed by the Blues at the weekend at Eden Park, so we were we had a few we had a few pretty hectic chase backs as they line break and we're chasing um, some of the mm-hmm. some of the some of their outside backs. So yeah, we ran fast against the Blues, but that's not necessarily not necessarily just context specific, isn't it? So um, yeah, I don't, I can't. With this around the fitness bits, it's a bit easier to guarantee transference or to, to, to assess transference because there's good data streams that we figure we're very big into, um, our data management and our data architecture over our systems and data streams coming into it and analyzing it and the rest of it. And, um, we've got loads of really good data coming in from Opta this year we like did last year, which games led on and we're getting some stuff in there. And, um, some stuff's getting coded centrally by. By RA around work rate and stuff, which is a new data stream as well. And we're seeing some good stuff there around guys' work rate in the game, which marries up to your fitness stuff. But in terms of strength, and power and speed, like you know, scrum dominance, while there's such a technical component of scrum. Your guy can get a syndesmosis and bring ankle rate, daughter ankle daughter flexion or scrum as well, they can't get as low. They've not got weaker, they just can't express it in that movement anymore. So it's such a it's such a minefield to look at and quantifying transfer of time, strength power and speed and rugby. Um I can't give you anything more than what I'm sort of talking about in terms of the conceptual understanding of it. We are talking about it. Um we've 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 got some time to have a look into a few things. Uh, we're big on we're trying to understand how we win collisions both with and without the ball and what that looks like. Um, things like assessing momentum, kinetic energy, any of these things that maybe will predict your collision quality. But the stuff Dan's does, Dan's done challenges that because he's not looking at, I mean, he's looking at momentum, yes, but he's looking at a position that puts you in a more, um, optimal position to express force, which is solving momentum. So suppose he has been a big, tall person running upright, running really fast. Those guys get leveled in You See it all the time. Big, strong club players stepping up to pro level. They just get leveled. And the stuff that Dan's, um, sort of going over there is how highlights that really well. So. Yeah, it is the Holy Grail, all of us are looking for. Um, I can't say that we've got anything particularly not we're doing here. We'd like, I'd love to give you a good answer, but I'm not sure I can.
1: So what? And you've said you've got some things that you're looking at. What would you actually need club-wide to be able to get a better understanding of that in an ideal world? Resources, not a problem. Personnel, not a problem. What would you need?
0: So what, what, what we do, and same as what we did around speed, and, um, I should probably mention Andy Murphy here, who's the sports scientist at GWS now. He was my sports scientist that we brought into Edinburgh. Um, and he's led on all that for us. He's, he's, his background is a PhD in sprinting and he's predicted of sprint performance and some of the modern kind of style stuff. And he's published a couple of things on that. And he dug into it big time for us and looking at these are the things that matter on the bucket field. So. There's that paper that, again, my old mate, Mark Bennett's published on um, looking at predictors of winning rugby games, I 2019, looking at, looking at that, and, you know, good kid game and not conceiving penalties when you do out of the ball and stuff like that. I will predict winning. So we, what we did was look at on all this data we get through from Opta, what are the things on that that we can physically affect? So meters made, defenders beaten, all these things have a huge physical component. We, we know they do. So what, what players are doing all these? things well in, you know, five, six, seven big metrics, to get them off, you know, what, what guys do this well, Build a data set, and then look at, well, what data do we have strength and power with on these players as well, and start building that out, and then start creating relationships between them, and back to the depth jump as well, depth jump is the strongest predictor in the Edinburgh group of defenders beaten, of meters made, post-contact meters, and stuff like that, so there's an, is that transference, or is that correlation, there's correlation, necessarily causation, but we're trying to build something and trying to make something up here a little bit and trying to make educated guesses, I guess, and that's where we took that. So, having better data that a bit more specific to taking Dan's example collision quality. So, you can get dominant carries off, off Opta if you want to get that. Um, it's whether you trust the Opta coding, I guess, but then looking at guys that are making dominant carries, why they're making dominant carries. and Start feeding in your S&C strength power data into that, and you start feeding in some of the technical stuff that data stream Dan would have created having whether guys get in the right positions or not, and those three different postures he's looking for, three different aspects of posture he's looking for, which one of those are they achieving, are they not? And start adding that to your data set, and then probably looking at building some models out from that and understanding the interaction of those different variables and start saying, Okay, yeah, well. Guys that are poor athletically, they have to get all three of them right, maybe, to, to win that collision. Guys that are freakishly good athletic because they're so big and so powerful, they don't need to get in all of them right every time. When they do, yeah, they win every collision. When they don't, they still win 89% of it. I'm making that up and theoretical, but that's the kind of stuff that we're beginning to, um, to talk about here, as We can combine some of those measures, and that's what we've got rattling around in our brains to look at. And, at the moment. We don't have a data stream like danger, like, like um Dan does looking at um those postures, that's something we need to we need to go do some work and get ourselves a dark room and chalk through some video chips to get that. So that's something we don't have at the moment. Um the this, just the, the quality of data around what being is difficult. But I love working in and Field because everything's so measurable and pre planned, every single footstep, hundred meter rate, you kinda of know what should should happen. So such an easy sport to analyse in rugby. That's before we even dig into Franz's concepts of well, what was the neural pathway regulating that movement. We're not even touched on that yet. We're just talking about how you execute, or you know, are you executing it? So, yeah, we need better um, data streams or more accurate data streams. Whether that's going to happen anytime soon, I've got I've got no idea. Whether we can tap into some of the technology around our GPS or not, at the moment we're certainly no not there, but. Even if we could reproduce something similar to what you know Dan's talking about and adding it to the other stuff we've got, we would that's kind of the stuff we're talking about doing. Um the defensive stuff's a big thing for us as well. when need collisions in defence because there's a lot of momentum changing actions that we want to get better at because it's it's important and something we feel we can improve that. So yeah, that's me for being pretty transparent of where we're at with it.
1: You said you were a bit of a critic of France when it when you first started publishing his, his book, have you gone to the point where you were actually integrating some of his stuff into what you do now?
0: A little bit. A little bit. Okay. Like I'm, okay. I'm, like I'm, I, get, I say that like I, I get on work. Well. Like I, know, I know John Fryer and Liego pretty well. Those two of big you know, France opponents and X and that. it. actually got a lot more from chatting to them than I do friends because they're a bit more applied. Some of the concepts, the understanding of, Deepening your wells to give yourself these sort of stable components that you can build these unplanned movements off of, like hip lock, an example. If you get guys that hip lock autonomously and they get really good co-contractions around the hip, if they're reacting to a stimuli on the field, they can, they could, they will autonomously, you know, create that posture and they will create that stability in which you can then solve the problem and the role of co-contractions in movement in and chaotic environments. Yeah. So yeah, I can, with some of that stuff we'll do. Um, the thing I struggle with it, which is the, the, the sort of cornerstone of work i critical, is I have all this um evidence and history and the tiny people before me, way before me, have got the same. And there's so much research showing that getting stronger and more explosive and sprinting regularly will make you better, better sprinter, more athletic, you know. And those classical training methods stood the test of time for a reason. To move away from them for something that there's not a lot of data showing it works. Is where I have my challenges. My brain is quite processed and whatever driven. It doesn't I struggle to get around that. The um Franz's argument would probably be, well, you can't measure the success of this because it's context-specific and it's about right, you know, solving problems in the right context. It's not necessarily improving your max velocity, it's improving your velocity in this context. So I get that. So we incorporate bits that fit into our program. Because the good thing around all Franz's stuff is very rarely for TV. It really, rarely comes at much cost. So it's pretty easy to work in. Um, and so, yes, we do bits and bobs of it. But my critique of it big time is you go on school through social media and so many people are prescribing these Bosch-inspired um, exercises without having an understanding of actually, well, that's not what Francis is talking about there. That's not, you're not, you know that just doesn't, doesn't fit. The understanding, of, you need to understand some of the harder science behind his book and behind his theories to understand how you apply it and the concept of, you like, frangle for work, you get the wrong attractor. you're going to make it to worse, not better. Um, and you see so much random stuff online. That's where my critique would be, is I don't know how many people have used random stuff and improved their programs because have made it worse, maybe. And
1: has that That's... ever stopped fun on social
0: media, Nick? <laughs> I'm not very good at social media, so I'm... Um, <laughs> Uh, like occasionally, I'm I'm the guy lurking in the background that doesn't post anything. Occasionally, I have a little flick through, uh, and then to sort of puts it away again. But when I do, when I do see it, does make me wonder sometimes? <laughs>
1: well, uh, thank you for that. I mean, we, I could we could go deep, and I could keep you for another hour, but I'm conscious that it's half nine at night there, and I've kept you for an hour already. It is, yeah. So I know you said you're not a social media guy, but can people find you on social media? Can people reach out? Ask yeah. any
0: questions? I have a delve a little bit deeper into anything. By, we'll all, means, anything yeah. else. by all means I'm very, very open to like, collaborating. I'm pretty um pretty open and honest. I don't have any secrets. Um what we do, I'm pretty open to sharing. So I have a Twitter account. Um I think it's at Lumley underscore Nick. Pretty sure. And then I've got an Instagram that's the opposite. Um at Nick underscore Lumley, I think. Although no, that is that way, that's correct. Um yeah, I do have it. I'm always reach out on that. I'll, I'll always, I'll always respond to young coaches that reach out with questions. They sometimes do, and if not, I can provide an email or whatever and get in touch that way. No stress at all.
1: Fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for being so open and listening about the things that you've done before, things that you're doing now, and things you aim to do in the future. So I really appreciate, it, Nick, and look forward to keeping in touch.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me
1: tune in to episode 453 of the Pacey Performance podcast big thanks to Nick for coming on and being so open and honest about the Waratahs what they do and what stage of the development they're at so really appreciate Nick's time also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics Stanta College and Team Builder for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys so I really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time